0: All right,
1: three, two, one. Hey, babe, Oh gosh, getting ready. Hey, babe.
0: All right, I was going I wanted us to get started, but I first have to ask. What? have you always been like this?
1: You mean awesome? Yes, totally.
0: I meant generally awkward, (laughs) off putting. So
1: that's that's not a good way to start (laughs) start working. (laughs) What's wrong with you?
0: Oh gosh. Okay. We can't open that can of worms because I'm focused on your can (laughs) of worms right now, which is like you know, loud, okay going, funny.
1: I would say yes like okay so here's an example to get out of trouble when i was a kid i used to drop a pencil behind my back and then i would catch it in my butt crack (laughs) just in order to make my mom laugh and
0: that worked
1: (laughs) well yeah i mean like if your child like catches a pencil in his butt like you you can't like keep the stern face and that's what would happen with my mom and then i would like run out of the room quickly before she could like realize what was actually happening
0: that is such bs that that worked
1: you know I think it's it's a totally an extreme example I but should I hope think, so yeah I, <laughs> You're
0: like this is <laughs> like the most mild thing I right, ever right
1: right I wouldn't recommend continuing to walk down that path but like <laughs> I think I think really like um you know humor my humor and my personality is is all pretty much based off of this kind of like foundation of pain actually what do you mean well um Okay, so Robin Williams once said that I think the saddest people always try their hardest to make people happy because they know what it's like to feel absolutely worthless and they don't want anyone else to feel like that. And, you know, for me, it took me a long time to really realize what I was using humor and laughter for. You know, I was using it to cover up the trauma from my youth. I was using it to shelter my alcoholism and my addiction. Does that, you get that?
0: Yeah. I'm wondering if you could change your past, do you think you would?
1: Uh, no, no, I wouldn't. Hmm. Like if, if someone told me they had this magic pill that I could use to cure me of my disease, I, I wouldn't take it. And, hmm. you know, I don't even think that I would go back and erase the trauma Hmm. which is kind of like shock. I mean, it's kind of fucked up. But here's the deal. Addiction is all about feeding a bottomless pit, right? And the life I live now is about filling that with a healthy self-worth and empathy. And there are other people out there who do that. They turn something that might be defined as a weakness into a strength, which leads us to today's show. We're talking to Eric Weinmayer. Most people know him as the blind guy that climbed Everest, but Eric's journey is so much deeper than man conquers mountain. He's got something to say, something that I think resonates on so many levels.
2: I believe that we find our purpose by harnessing our barriers, not by overcoming them.
1: How does an obstacle become a source of power? Let's find out. I'm Patty O'Connell.
0: And I'm Elizabeth Nakano.
1: Welcome to Safety Third, a show about ideas and how we come to believe in them.
2: It's like that actor on MASH who never could get a role afterwards because he's always like Radar O'Reilly, no matter what. Like typecasted, no matter what. Mm-hmm. I'm typecasted. I'm the blind guy who climbed Everest. So, And I'm happy about that. That's fine. It's all good.
0: Eric's actually the first blind guy. He climbed Everest in 2001. It wasn't until 16 years later that in 2017, an Austrian climber named Andy Holzer also reached the summit.
1: But Eric's no Radar O'Reilly. He's also a dedicated father. He's a husband. He's an author.
0: He's a kayaker. A really, really good one.
1: He's got dark secrets. Like he chooses goobers over peanut M&Ms. He's a Howard Stern fan. He's been listening to Stern since he was 14, which means Eric may still be 14. But, in my opinion, the darkest secret of his past?
0: You gonna finish there, O'Connell? Shh, I'm building tension.
1: His darkest secret of all? An East Coast upbringing. I'm assuming that you were just, like, gifted, uh a life's worth of Sperry's like topsiders and seersucker suits <laughs> that's what i know about connecticut
2: you're 100% right is that is that true yeah we had gangs in our neighborhood it was the odds against the polos <laughs> <laughs> i grew up in a little town called weston we were just like a boring town in the woods and so you kind of had to make your own fun and there weren't really that many mountains around and right but the outdoors yeah were always a part of my life in a connecticut kind of way i I would be the one, you know, running through the woods like bouncing off of trees trying to keep up with my friends, you know, as we egged a house or put firecrackers in somebody's mailbox. <laughs>
1: Um, <laughs> well, I, d- I don't know if the statute of limitations is up on any of these things. So like, you might want to keep those stories
2: close to the chest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think they'll forgive me.
1: And you were playing like traditional team sports as a kid, right? Like baseball and basketball and stuff.
2: Yeah, I loved uh, basketball. I loved baseball and uh, I couldn't see that great. So my friends would bounce past balls to me and I had ways of knowing where I was. Like I would look down at the key because I could see that. I couldn't see the backboard super great, but I could line myself up with the key and like orient myself on the court by doing that. So, you know, I had little systems. So I never could see very well when I was a kid. I was blind pretty much in my left eye, but I could see a little bit out of my right eye. And after like a bunch of eye doctor visits, they figured out that I had this super rare eye disease called retinaschesis.
0: Retinaschesis is when the retina separates into two layers. Some people retain some of their vision, But others, like Eric, go blind. The last of Eric's eyesight started to go when he was 14.
1: One of the last things he watched on TV was an episode of his favorite show, That's Incredible. It was like the 80s version of America's Got Talent, except it highlighted inspiring stories of people with actual talent rather than showing people who can sort of sing while juggling puppies and bowls of fruit salad.
0: So on the show, Eric saw this guy, Terry Fox, run across Canada. Terry had lost a leg to cancer and he was raising money for research.
2: Now, that's not a normal decision. (laughs) You lose your leg and you just like protect yourself and you shrink and curl up in a little ball and then just protect. And he didn't do that. You know, he converted that darkness, that tragedy into something else. You know, cancer did come back and kill Terry in the end, but in 22 years, he lived big. Shortly after
1: seeing Terry's run, Eric lost his eyesight entirely. He was just about to start high school.
2: Yeah, so the first day of my freshman year, I had literally gone blind probably a week or two before that. I was afraid to go blind, but believe it or not, that was secondary. The real fear for me was like I wasn't going to have friends, like I wasn't going to be able to drive, I wasn't going to be able to be able to function like I wouldn't be able to do anything, and I'd just be sitting there, like, in this chair, in this table by myself, listening to all the excitement and laughter and fun stuff happening that's passing me by. I went into school, and my teacher's aide was waiting for me at the front door, and I had to take her arm and walk through the hallways and walk into the bathroom and walk to class and be led around. It was not a way of being popular in school. It was about the worst way you could start high school that I could imagine. Yeah. Um, And then, yeah, there was the cafeteria trying to navigate with my cane and tray of food and trying to be cool at the same time, you know, be with my friends. And my friends were uncomfortable because they didn't know how to treat me anymore. And the way I describe it is I, you know, I felt like I had was an egg, you know, like you get thrown on the hallway floor and it's like all gooey and yolks spreading everywhere and people don't even, it's disgusting. They don't know, they want to just kind of avoid it and walk around it, you know, and I was that cracked egg in the hallway. I just, people didn't know what to do with me. I didn't know what to do back. And, you know, you're just sort of mired in darkness and silence and anger.
0: As part of his coping strategy, Eric got a guide dog, And he got into sports.
1: Eric's brother coaxed him into trying out for the wrestling team. During his first practice, this upperclassman was flinging freshmen around. And like everybody else, Eric got slammed to the mat. He says it was a gift. Finally, he was just one of the guys.
0: That experience gave him courage to try new things. So when he learned about a recreational program for blind kids, he signed up.
2: And one weekend, they took us rock climbing and it was up in North Conway, New Hampshire. And I still remember, it's like one of these memories that you have, you know, 30-something years later. Of It was the opposite of what I thought blindness would be. It was fully engaging. First of all, like the smells and everything were just, it was a fall day. It was just beautiful up in New Hampshire. You know, you were walking through these beautiful piles of leaves and the smells of forest, and then the the smell of the rock, the granite, as the sun touched the rock, it has this beautiful sort of baked smell and the smell of dampness, you know, around it. And uh, the texture of hot and cold on the rock as the sun, you know, in the shade moved throughout the face and all the little divots and cracks and pockets and dishes and all the things that you could discover with your hands and feet on the rock and sort of look at that face as a puzzle and decipher all the the, the the map sort of up that plane and get your body and all these crazy positions from point A to B to C to D. I loved it. I, I remember sitting on the top of the first pitch and I was facing out over the valley you know, blind people use something that I've begun to use called echolocation, where you can hear the sound of space. Like, sound has is vibration that moves out into space, and it bounces back off of objects and comes back at you. And then I could hear the valley below me. I think there was like a chainsaw somewhere in the distance that was creating enough sound that it was kind of echoing across the valley, and I could hear the valley, and it was so, so incredible. The only way I can describe it, it was like a rebirth.
0: We'll be right back after a short word from our sponsor.
1: Eric's rebirth continued after college. He moved to Phoenix for a teaching gig, and he joined the Arizona Mountaineering Club. He became friends with a guy who planted the mountaineering seed in his brain. They set their sights on Denali. And they crushed it. Eric kept training and improving his skills. The obvious next step? Climb the world's largest Stairmaster ice machine, Everest.
0: Eric was hungry for climbing challenges, and Everest is, of course, full of challenges. According to the New York Times, in a typical year, about half the people attempting Everest actually reach the summit. Eric's first big challenge was right out of base camp, the Khumbu Icefall.
2: It's, you know, a couple thousand feet of just a blind person's worst nightmare. Like if you wanted to kill a blind person, you would drop them on a helicopter in the middle of the Khumbu Icefall. It doesn't meet Americans with Disability Act standards. It just jumbled up boulders of ice of every size imaginable. No step is the same. Every step is at a different angle. You know, there's crevasses everywhere. There's drop-offs everywhere. The boulders of ice shift and roll under your feet. You're zigzagging on snow bridges that are the width of your boot, and you're trying to, like, tightrope across these things. You're jumping across some crevasses. There are fixed lines, but still, you're going to break your leg if you fall. There are ladder crossings. Where you have to, you know, walk across ladders, four or five ladders lashed together with Sherpa boat twine, and the consequences every step. I just was completely overwhelmed. It took me 13 hours to get through the icefall, and that was just way too long because it's a volatile place. Seracs collapse and fall on top of people and destroy the trail. I kind of staggered my way over the icefall. I was about 100 feet from Camp 1, and I tripped over this crevasse like my front points got stuck in this little crack. And my friend reached over to grab me, and he bashed me in the nose with a ski pole. So I came into camp with, like, blood pouring down my nose. My nose is still bent to this day, because I think I broke it on Everest, but who knows? So that was a real low point, because, I mean, I was just thinking, like, well, of course it gets harder from here. It doesn't get easier and if that's the case, I don't have a chance on this mountain. So it seems like like along
1: with what others would see as this like obvious barrier, your blindness, it seems like a big thing or maybe even more impactful was your own self-doubt. I call it the power of no, that voice inside of you that is like, nope, you are, should not do this. You shouldn't be here. I mean, so was that just as big to deal with?
2: Yeah, so the whole trip I was struggling with that. You know, I I'm a big reader and I was an English teacher and so one of the books we read was The Odyssey and you know remember Odysseus and his crew they're coming back from the war and they pass the island of the Sirens, these these maidens and they're they're calling out in these beautiful voices and all the sailors just jump off the ship and swim and they realize that these uh maidens are monsters and they're gobbled up and they're never seen again and I was hearing the sirens (laughs) a lot on the mountain, you know, like, come down the mountain, like, there are cheeseburgers waiting for you down there, and what are you doing up here? (laughs) Yeah, it's always the cheeseburger. And actually, it was Pete Athens. He's a famous climber, and he was at base camp doing a project, and he gave me this beautiful Tibetan medallion, and he told me that there's a Tibetan quote that said, the nature of mind is like water. If you do not disturb it, it becomes clear. And I thought that 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 was really an important thing that he would tell me that because that really has been a huge part of how I climb now because you work up all this fear and doubt and anxiety and it, all that stuff becomes like a weight that collapses you, that sabotages you. Yeah. And so I had to kind of let go of that stuff. So I did a lot of meditation, a lot of sitting outside my tent just envisioning myself on the summit trying to clear my mind saying to myself like look don't just go through the motions like if you're just going to go through the motions and then turn around and quit like leave now like commit to this thing don't be unsafe but be here and truly experience every step of this mountain take it in and that was just incredibly helpful because it helped me to kind of just keep waking up every day and keep moving forward Enough days
1: of just keep moving, just keep moving. And boom, Eric was on the summit of Everest, standing on the roof of the world. After Eric finished this badass accomplishment, he went back to Colorado. And one day he got a phone call from a filmmaker named Mark Wellman.
0: Mark invited Eric to participate in the film he was shooting about disabled climbers. They went to ancient art near Moab.
2: And uh, he had another guy with us. Named Hugh Her, who is a double leg amputee. Hugh had lost his legs in a climbing accident on Mount Washington in the winter. He went down the wrong side of the mountain. He got terribly lost. His legs were frostbitten, and he climbs in this amazing way because he uh, he was like a tinkerer. So he went back and he engineered some legs that looked really silly. They're like short legs with feet like like a doorstop, and he could wedge them into these seams that like a human foot could barely even couldn't even attempt to stand in. And so he was a better climber as an amputee than when he had legs. But that journey, standing on the summit with those guys, really was a huge pivotal moment in my life because I was fascinated by people like that. They go out and they they have dreams and they have hope and they have optimism and then they just get completely shattered. And then what's that process look like where certain people can kind of rise up and sort of figure out how to navigate this new map forward?
1: Climbing ancient art with Mark and Hugh made Eric feel something. It was that same feeling he had when he watched Terry Fox run across Canada.
2: Oh my gosh, it was like watching Terry run all over again. It was, and at that point I was maybe 30 or 5 or something, so I could truly kind of understand the process better than when I was 13. At the time I didn't really understand it, but it seemed like he was able to convert it into a kind of darkness into something bigger, like a kind of vision, that energy that propelled him forward. You know, you hear this idea of overcoming obstacles, overcoming barriers, but I don't think that's quite right. It's how you harness the energy there and not allow it to be the thing that crushes you, but the thing that propels you forward. Honestly, it's to a place that you would have never gone to in any other way. So Hugh, for instance... One of the stories he told me was, you know, when he woke up in the hospital and he looked at his legs, where his lower legs were supposed to be, the sheets just dropped into space. I mean, you know, that was like pain, as deep as pain can come from. And he told me that he thought the greatest breakthrough of his life, one of the greatest breakthroughs was when he looked down at his, you know, legs, where he didn't have legs in that space, and he didn't see loss anymore. What he saw was this blank canvas. And he was the painter and he could build anything in that space that he wanted to. It was like a fresh start. He didn't have to copy human legs anymore. He didn't have to copy uh, prosthetics technology. You know, he could build in that space anything he wanted. And it was liberating.
1: When was that moment for you?
2: I think for me, it's the moment when I'm out there climbing I'm climbing at a high level, and I'm out there, and it's a beautiful experience, and I'm with my team, and I'm contributing to the team, and we're doing something together, and I'm thinking, I don't care that this is harder for me. I don't really care. Like, you know, yeah, if you looked at the pros and cons of being blind climber or being a sighted climber, being a blind climber, technically there are more cons, (laughs) but I'm not going to see my life in that way because I'm just so happy and thankful and appreciative to be out there doing the things that I want to do at a high level. If I have to work harder, great. Who cares? To me, it's thrilling to be part of it. You know, when these terrible things, when tough things, they happen, they can be the reason why you stop there and you get stuck, or they can be the energy that propels you forward. Right. And so adversity isn't like the bad thing. In a way, it's sort of the pathway that that we take in our lives. So I've tried to live like that, you know, the best I can
1: for you how, how do you think that your blindness has helped you achieve your goals in your life
2: i may have, first of all i may have never even turned to the mountains if i could have seen i mean nobody in my family climbed or did anything like that I mean, so many of the things that have propelled my life forward have actually been because of loss. My mom was killed in a car accident when I was 16, right after I went blind. And after that, my dad said, hey, you know, like, we got to stay together as a family. And so we started hiking together in the summer. And uh, as a blind person, I kind of hated hiking, but I like being with my family. You know, you get a lot of loss in your life. And that's like a hole. It's a hole in your soul. You know, it's damage, right? It's like a bomb going off and there's this hole that's created. So what can you do with that? Well, what I've tried to do is to fill that hole in with other things. Fill it in with love. Fill it in with something bigger.
1: Man, I get that feeling. Trying to live life with this like giant hole. You know, it it does not work. I tried to fill it with, selfish mountain pursuits and booze and drugs. And the whole only got bigger. What did fill that void was passion, connection, and empathy. That's what Eric did. And that's why he helped start the No Barriers program.
0: No Barriers gets people outside. It helps them confront and harness any number of challenges.
2: What we find at no barriers is that most of the world are not physically disabled like me, but they have invisible barriers. So I think in a way, that experience of going blind and struggling through that gave me a really deep empathy for what that feels like. One of the most incredible guys I've worked with that makes a huge impact on me is this guy, Paul. When he was a young kid, his mom was killed in this really violent, horrific way, and I just overwhelmed the family. and he was sent off to military school. And and so, you know, you grow up with like that and you have sort of feelings of helplessness and you know, and, and that's just sort of gets into your DNA. And he joined the military, part of the first cavalry division. He went off. He was really proud to serve, you know, whether whatever your thoughts on the war are, but and then he got blown up, burned over fifty percent of his body, pits and scars. But he told me, this is like really, really interesting to me, that the physical stuff wasn't the bad part. Like he could deal with the pain and the scars but the hard part was the shame came flooding back into his life he said it was straight up shame because now he was it was sort of validating all his fears like he was letting his team down he was being evacuated out of there he didn't want to go and so his life turned pretty bad after that car accidents and drug and alcohol abuse and and then he uh realized that this was not what he wanted to do and it's always people who are poised they would realize, like, I am stuck, and I don't know how to get out of this. And Paul guided me, actually, as we climbed Gannett Peak together. And halfway through that experience, as we, you know, talked along the trail, he turned to me and he said, hey, I feel like I'm waking up from a dream, and I need a different kind of life. After that program, he went and checked himself into rehab. He got off painkillers that had been really hurting him. And I like people like Paul because they remind me that growth is painful it's messy it's tumultuous it's not like you hear about in the movies there's a lot of flailing and bleeding and struggling along the way but it's still possible so it makes you very hopeful
1: so eric continues to challenge himself to grow in messy tumultuous ways i mean he's he's not going to take up knitting in a rocking chair you know what i mean So in 2008, he completed the seven summits, meaning he climbed the highest peak on every continent. Bonkers. At the time, only 150 mountaineers had completed the feat.
0: And in 2014, he kayaked the entire length of the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon. That's 277 miles of gnarly whitewater.
2: As a blind person, you can't really look at videos and get a picture of what something is. You have to go through it and experience it. And I thought the closest way to experience that river would be right against the surface on a kayak where I could feel all the nuances, all the power of the river. And I loved the process of learning how to kayak. It was a six-year process of learning. It was a hard process, too, because in those early days of training, you know, I'd get off the Shoshone, which is a section of the Colorado I just have like hit rocks and I'm spinning around and I smash my elbow and I'm bleeding and you know, I'm flipping upside down and my helmet's pounding against rocks and I pull my skirt and I'm swimming and getting fished out by my friends and uh, I get on the bank and I'd be like, okay, I got to keep it positive. Like what am I learning here? I'm learning why there aren't that many blind kayakers in the world, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and uh, so it was It was a struggle, but I, I didn't do it, you know, to prove that blind people can do this or that. I mean, for me, as I said, it was more personal. Really, it seems
1: like no matter what this thing is in front of you, this thing that is stopping you from experiencing life, fully experiencing life, you can actually use this thing that was traumatic or uh, has been this anchor of shame or this, um, emotional upheaval in your life. You can harness this thing and use it like flip it and use it to propel you towards a bigger, better life.
2: I would agree. And I think, you know, a lot of us, whether you go blind or not, we sort of are removed from our lives a little bit, you know, it's almost like maybe we're looking at our lives through a window and, I think I've done that throughout my life from time to time. And I catch myself and I say, no, I want to experience things. I don't want to be looking at my life through a window. I want to be in the window, in that experience. And kayaking gives me this opportunity to be right in the middle of it. And something about that really appeals to me. But it's, you're right. It's not, I'm not doing it to prove that blind people can do this or that. I mean, that's so, sh- it gets so shallow to do that, you know?
1: I think to a certain extent, you know, what you're doing is like, you have felt the loneliness, the darkness, the cage, you know, the the description that you used for that 14 year old self in the cafeteria. You've experienced that, which gives you, I think a great amount of, of empathy. And like, it seems to me like what you're doing with no barriers, what you're doing with the grand or Everest or any of the outdoor pursuits that you do is not to, fucking prove that blind people are blind people are just like us they can you know comb their hair oh my god (laughs) you know it's like it's not that it's all of us any of us are trying to navigate life and you know to a, a certain extent a lot of us have felt that cage yeah and to me what it seems like what you're doing with all of the things that you do is to show people how to harness this thing whatever it is inside of them to become a participant in their life rather than a prisoner of it
2: yeah um mark wellman calls it being a doer not a viewer
1: and for you what do you think is the ingredient list to harness your barrier rather than overcome it
2: i think it's partly courage and i don't mean some kind of heroic sense of courage just a courage to decide you know, I'll use a kayaking metaphor that you're gonna, you know, get out of the eddy, which is the stagnant, still part of the river, and you're gonna live in the current. You're gonna be out there. That's that's a scarier place to live for sure, but that's what moves you along. And so sometimes, you know, it's just sort of I don't really know what to call it, but sort of saying like there's a light inside you. We're gonna build that light, that energy inside you, so that you have what it takes to harness that barrier and move forward. Right. Because, I mean, staying within the eddy, while there's
1: some sense of of safety there, like, oh, I can't be hurt, you know, but you also can't experience anything. So it's it sounds like it's, you know, you need some courage to get into the current of life and be a, a joyful participant in all the things that life has to offer, which might be flipping over, which might be hitting some rocks, which might be, getting turned around backwards, of getting off of your line, your predetermined line. But really, I think the other ingredient in there is you need to be okay with being vulnerable, because if you're not okay with maybe the possibility of hurt, then you really don't have the opportunity to really truly experience life at all.
2: You know, that idea of harnessing barriers, I call it alchemy, you know, taking lead and turning it into gold. You know, it's from those medieval sorcerers who tried to take lead and turn it into gold. They couldn't do it, but we can do it inside of us. And I think if you're staying the eddy, you have no chance for alchemy. There's no chance for alchemy. You got to be in the current for alchemy to happen. And yeah, that means getting your butt kicked. That means having loss and pain and all the stuff that life creates for you. But it also gives you moment after moment after moment to create alchemy in your lives that'll... Not to get too cheesy, but that does change the world, that does elevate the world around you.
1: You've been listening to Safety Third a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. Eric Weinmayer was our guest today. If you want to see pictures of our interviewees, follow us on Instagram at safetythird_podcast. underscore podcast. You can leave comments and questions on our website, safetythirdpodcast.com. Like what you heard here? Well, then spread the word, friend. Good ideas need bullhorns. Safety Third is produced by Elizabeth Nicano. Mario Quintana edited this episode. Additional production help from Meredith Turk, music by my stinky brother, Brendan O'Connell, art direction by Anya Miller-Berg, Fitz Cahal is our creative director, Becca Kahal is our executive producer, and I am your host, Patty O'Connell. Okie dokie dudes and dudettes, until next time, keep it tight, keep it loose, and remember, safety third.